0: It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by ecospace.com. Now, here's your hosts, Adam and Jason. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam A. Adams, your expert for out-of-box strategies. And today, we actually have Don Costa he's been involved in real estate for years and years and years. This guy was born and raised in California. He lives in Fresno. He does business in Fresno, the Bay Area. He's actually been involved in real estate since 2003, all the way through the crash of 2008. Took a little hiatus from real estate. I think he licked his wounds a bit. And in 2012, he really took off. What we're going to learn today is a lot to do with the way you can actually scale your business. So we're going to talk about how to find buyers, sellers, how to find markets, how to pick markets, how to find money, how to find contractors. We talk about leveraging teams of people. Guys, one, a couple quick things about Don is that he runs the Flip Talk radio podcast. So if you're going to want to find, go and look for Flip Talk and see what other information that he has to offer you, as well as Get this, last year he did about 120 deals, a little over 120. This year he's on track to more than double that. So he should be doing around 250 deals this year, half of them wholesales and half of them fix and flips. So with that said, I know we're gonna learn a lot from Don Costa today. So Don, tell me what is it that I kind of missed about your bio? Is there something that you wanted to share with the audience and we'll get right into it?
1: No, I mean, I think you got everything in there. You know, the fact that I lost everything, you know, I think it's important to note that I was a certain type of person and a certain type of manager, Um, just an arrogant kind of fool, I guess, pre-crash. And, uh, you know, now I'm much more humble, balanced, and I rely heavily on a team and systems and processes, and I'm a better person for losing everything. So I think that's important to note is, is I wouldn't change it for the world. I'm in a better place, a better business person, a better husband, better father for it.
0: Awesome. And I think that is sound advice. So you mentioned now that you've kind of gotten out of this crash and licked your wounds. uh, You've learned a lot. You've grown a lot. One of those things that you learned was leveraging other people's time. Uh, You, you, you specifically said, having a team in place to make sure that none of, none of these balls gets dropped and to make sure that you're handling. And I automatically, just right off, I can tell that this is something that you excel at. People don't get 250 deals done in one year if they're bad at organizing a team. So there's a lot of information that I, I know we're going to pull from you. So first, let me ask you, why is having a team important? Let's start there.
1: Well, I mean, it's, it's ultimately important just because you can't do everything yourself. I mean, you're either you're doing your marketing and planning your marketing or you're out on acquisitions or you're, you know, managing a rehab or you're writing checks, you're doing one or the other. You can never do it all at once. And so a lot of people in their business, especially starting out, they'll see kind of this ebb and flow of highs and lows. Um, in their organization, because they'll turn the marketing on, they'll get busy, they'll go into rehab mode, they'll turn the marketing off, they'll, you know, then some of the rehabs are done, they have nothing on their plate. And so part of it, that's just making sure that you have, you know, consistency. Everybody asks me, how do I get consistency in my business? And my answer is put the right people in place so that things get done when they're supposed to get done. And everything moves consistently like it's supposed to, and you'll find consistency.
0: Before we got into the interview, you mentioned actually something on this subject where you basically said you have a foundation team, right? And you don't have to really manage them. Uh, can you go into that team and why they're able to kind of be on their own?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I've always had employees pre-crash. I had employees when 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 I say team now, they're really a team. Uh, pre-crash, I was a bottleneck. I had to make the decisions. I didn't trust anybody. Uh, everything had to go through me. The buck stops here, right? Um, and I, I managed that way. I kind of I was the alpha and omega, and I had an ego and a chip on my shoulder. And this round of business, you know, from everything I learned from losing everything is I let my people make decisions. I let them think. I, I found people who are teachable and coachable. We built them into the people we needed them to be in our organization, and we're able to count on them to run on their own you know, if that makes sense. And that's, that's how I've approached it this time is is, I, I, I found people who are teachable and coachable, developed them into where I wanted them, who I needed them to be. And I let them go. I let them fail. I let them make mistakes. I let them make decisions. And my company runs better for it. And so I don't have to micromanage them. They know their role. They know their job. They stay in their lane and they get it done.
0: I really love that. That is, I mean, Rewind that, listen to it again. There's a lot of really good information in that. And I I think uh, it would be easy to miss if you were just driving and uh, heard that because there's a lot of wisdom. I want to get into a couple of quick things. I mean, I've got so much that I want to ask you. I just don't know if it's going to all fit into this episode. But number one question that I want to ask you is for doing as many wholesales as you do, 120 plus this year, when you're finding your buyers, what, is, what have you found the most successful way to find those buyers?
1: You know, if, if I'm being blatantly honest, that is not something that I've even dealt with in my organization. I put somebody in place. I said, you know, the, the other thing about build a team is making sure you have people in the right seats. I had a guy in acquisitions. He was a square peg round hole guy. He wanted to make every deal work. Uh, which isn't always the best fit for acquisitions. And I I just felt like he was right for dispositions because that square peg round hole mentality is great for dispo, finding a buyer, making it work no matter what. I put him in that position. He took off um, and ran with it. What I can say that I know that he did um, the benefit of us being rehabbers for years is um, he knew the wholesalers that were selling to us. And so he backtracked a lot of their transaction stuff that he sent to us that we didn't buy and looked at who did buy and built out the list that way. Um, you know, he went through and, and checked county records to see who was paying cash in our area and reached out to some of those people. Um, you know, he's talked to different real estate agents about uh, some of the cash buyers they work with and developed relationships that way. You know, I, I know he got on Google and uh, Craigslist and uh, sought out who was cash buyers and, and advertising through those sources. So really, I mean, again, he overturned every rock and, and shook every bush. And, and he did a really good job doing that. One of, uh, again, his square peg round whole talent, we had a deal that everybody in a market that we're, we don't normally do business in, that everybody told us was not a deal. And uh, that they wanted to pay about half what, he had, what we had it in contract for. Um, he got on the phone. He just started calling agents in that market. He found an agent who had a buyer. We ended up getting a $100,000 assignment fee for that property um, and uh, on a property that every, all the buyers we knew in that market told us wasn't a deal. So, he's, just, he's aggressive. He's not taking no for an answer. And if he's got to pick up the phone and call 20 people he's never talked to before, he's going to do it.
0: I absolutely love that. Got a lot of info from you on, on how to find buyers, even though that's not a part of the business right. that you mostly focus on. How do you find sellers? So, I mean, you're actually needing to find 250 sellers. So, this right. seems a little bit harder. What, would you, what advice would you have to somebody on how to find those sellers?
1: It really depends on the level of their business. So, like when I was new in this iteration of my business career in flipping in 2012, I had literally lost everything. I had a million dollar judgment against me. I was not going to get a bank loan. I, um, Literally went to the gas station and bought a gallon of gas in quarters. Uh, You know, I was every month it was like just trying to keep the lights on broke. Like I had no budget for marketing. So if you're in that aspect of it where you're like, I can't afford to market, I networked. Um, I use the term OPM constantly and it's not what everybody thinks it is. To me, OPM is other people's marketing. And so I got on Craigslist. I got on Google. I called Bandit Signs. Um, if I got a postcard or a letter from you about we buy houses, I was calling you up and introducing myself, and uh, going to Rias and talking to people, and just letting them know who I I was and what I was doing. I was going to open houses with agents, and I was introducing myself and inviting them to lunch or coffee, and you know, basically trying to develop relationships. And I attacked everything with how can I add value to you? How can I add value to your business? How can I be different than all the other people out there doing investing? And that network that I built of people sustained my business for a long time. You know, you think you, you you have an agent that brings you deals that might be good for two or three a year. But if you know 10 of those people, you're talking about 20 to 30 properties a year that are just falling in your lap. I built that. And so... Up until basically this last January, a large portion of what we did business-wise was from buying from wholesalers, agents bringing us pocket listings or deals that fell through escrow, and uh, and then the other networking stuff we did. Um, We did some marketing, but not to the level we're doing this year. Um, But I built it that way. And I suggest to people that that's still a great way to build your business. Um, You know, we got to a point where we shook every bush. You know, we did PPC and SEO and direct mail. But, um, but we, we really realized, relied heavily on the network I built. 2018, different story. I knew that wasn't sustainable as I wanted to pull myself completely out of my business. And so we doubled down on marketing. And uh, we are very, very like postcards, for instance. You know I've sent out a half million postcards this year alone to date. So um, by January, I'll be somewhere close to a million postcards. Um, just in postcards, that doesn't even count all the other marketing stuff we do.
0: Okay that is that is so awesome so much information that we just got from you right. uh, a lot more than i expected and one of my favorite parts is just the thought of you're going to find a way you might not have a marketing budget right now today well you do but somebody may not have a marketing budget today of 30k a month 100k a month or anything like that but you found a way to say, if you don't have that, use OPM, meaning other people's marketing. Right. So everybody, there's a lot of other people that are spending 30K a month. Mm-hmm. And if You can find a way to network that with them, tell them what you're doing, take them out to coffee. You'll be able to leverage the marketing that they're already doing. And by networking, you'll end up making more money, finding more sellers. I, I think that that is really, really great. So I appreciate you going over it. The next question that I want that I had queued up is about finding markets. And the reason I bring it up to you specifically, Don, is you actually have, as far as I know, um, you only invest and do flips and do wholesales somewhere near you. So you've been you live in California and you're doing a whole bunch of deals in California, 250 this year. But there's a lot of people that maybe living. Colorado or live in New York or live in California, but they say that there isn't deals here. So, they're finding other markets. So, I really want to talk to you and pick your brain based on all of that information on how is it you that you find markets? How is it that you go into and find these markets when I think other people would have said there's no deals left?
1: Well, I mean, it's, it's not so much that I, I find markets that you know, I actually attack markets that people say there's no deals in. You know, we're in the California Bay Area. We're in six cities. Um, we've done some, you know, test runs on, on our marketing to figure out what works and what doesn't. I suggest if you're going to market, no matter what your budget is, you test and figure out postcard or letter, you know, um, what list works best. If you only have a $500 a month budget, you know, maybe pick a zip code or two and just hit those over and over again. Don't try to do as big as we do. And that's the kind of, I really practice what I preach. And I go in and I test and I look at the response and I test some more. I'm in the Bay Area. We've done three deals already, a um, quarter million dollars in profits. Um, the first deal we did was a six-figure wholesale fee and it cost me $3,400 to get that deal. So, um, and, and, and that's a market where everybody says direct mail doesn't work. So, I think I look, I look at the world through a different lens. See, I have, um, I have an advantage. I have what I feel is a huge advantage. You know, when you do something in life, like say you're a manager for a restaurant and then you get fired or you quit and you get, you know, a year or two out, you look back on that experience and you can kind of Monday morning quarterback yourself and you can grow from that and see it through a different lens, right? But you usually probably don't go back into that career that you left and moved on from. I flipped houses and the market crashed and I lost everything and I stepped away for about four years and grew as a person, and then came back into it. And so I, I think I see it differently. I think that's a competitive advantage. I see it through a different lens. If you tell me something doesn't work, well, first of all, I can see ways like the things that you're not doing and things that you haven't tried because of my experience and because of what I went through. And I can implement those things and, and, and nine times out of 10, get them to work to my advantage. And so that's, that's part of it for me. Um, so I suggest that you know, even if you don't have that, that hindsight, that, that, that previous experience that you try to look at things a different lens, look at what other people are doing and aren't doing and, and do some testing of your own to figure out what works for you. That's, that's suggestion. Number one, the other thing that the only other thing I look at when I go into a market is, is there a demand for the properties? That's really all I care about is I want to be able to list something or wholesale something and have there be a demand. I don't want to go into a market where things sit for six months and before they sell. Um, so really that's the only thing, other thing I look at, but I, I'm actually in, like I said, I'm doing some stuff in Southern California and I'm actually in between the Bay Area and Southern California, some markets that people say are impossible. and We're doing quite well. Um, uh, but I'm not taking anything for granted and I'm testing and tweaking and learning. So.
0: I love that. I have a short story, uh, tangent. Uh, basically when you were talking about finding markets, you said two things. One was basically just, I'm thinking outside the box. I'm going against the grain and I'm okay with it because you said I can see what other people cannot see because I have the experience or the wisdom from past experiences to actually see them. And the other one was you want to find a market where there's demand. Uh, So I basically, I wanna go on this thing where you see something that other people don't see. And that's something that I had a recent experience with. I was just sitting down with somebody at a mastermind. So I was in Las Vegas and it's a multifamily mastermind. And we were talking social media and I don't claim to be the absolute best at social media, but I'm pretty great at it. I understand a lot of the ins and outs of how to hack those algorithms over time. We've learned that stuff. And this guy came up to me and he says, how do you do it? And I basically said, I I mean, I can't really answer your question, but if you show me a post that you've done let me look at it and I'll, and I'll pick it apart. I'll tell you what things you need to change on there because we could be here for hours going over how to optimize your social media, but what will be best is you to show me one that you already have and, and I'll pick it apart. And I think that might be your brain when you're talking about finding markets is you or finding marketing material. You, people say these postcards don't work and it's just like, well, show me the postcard. And now I'm going to think about the sellers that these are going to and why they're not answering it. And I'm going to change it. I'm going to make it something that they will answer. So you've kind of found a way to reverse engineer or think Mm -hmm. outside the box from what other people are doing. I don't mean to take the show, but we'll go on to the next question. So out of all of the things that your business needs, there's quite a bit when you're a wholesaler or a fix and flipper there's so many different parts but one mm-hmm. of those parts that some people miss cuz they're just marketing or they're just um you know they're just finding buyers or they're just signing, finding sellers one of the most important key components right here uh, at least as a wholesaler is you and a buyer you need to find money mm-hmm. and i i assume and i don't mean to assume but maybe i'll ask the question is are you borrowing other people's money? Are you using OPM uh, in this way, or is it all your money? Because if it is, if it's all your money, then maybe asking the question is not going to help.
1: No, I use other people's money. Okay. I, I don't I? Yeah. And and I, and I don't do hard money. Um, I'm very particular about how I borrow and why I borrow. Okay. Um, so I don't do hard money in any way, shape, or form because I don't I don't believe in large deposits, and I think that I think that. Flippers and wholesalers. You know, we've all been trained that we need to have skin in the game. That, that it's important for us to have skin in the game, and that makes us you know, a good, a good risk, right? Because I mean, why would we let a project go bad if we have our money in it? Well, the thing is, is that 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 mentality pushes, especially you know, flippers, rehabbers who are growing um, their business. It pushes them to a situation where they end up being property rich and, and cash poor, and I think it makes them a huge risk. You know, if you're you're putting twenty thousand down on a $100,000 property and you're buying, you know, two a month and your average turn times is 120 days between your payment and your down payments. If you're doing two a month, you're out $180,000 in four months before you ever see it dying back, yep. you know? And, and how can you, how can you grow that way? You can't. Um, I, I always refer to the term that flippers are ball and broke. You know, they're, they're ballers or shot callers or they're, they're making all this money and they got these properties and they're driving a fancy car, but really they don't even have a money, the money in the bank to make the car payment because it's all in properties. And um, I just think that that's, I think that makes you a bad risk. And I'm, I'm trying to change the way people think because uh, it makes you a bad risk. And what's going to happen is one project's not going to go right. And it's going to be like a house of cards. And even though you have skin in the game, you're not gonna be able to do anything about it, you yeah. know? Because you got nothing, no reserves, no resources. So um, I borrow 100% on my properties. I use private money only. I don't put any of my money in properties. Sometimes I will close with my money, but I'll immediately refinance out because I want to be able to make decisions from a position of power. I want to be able to run my company from a position of power. I don't know how many flippers, I'm sure any of them that are listening to this, have been in the position where you're just desperate to take whatever offer you can take on a property because you need to get that property off your books and money back in the bank. And you're, you're running your, your business from position to weakness. It's the wrong position to be in. You can't hire like you're, you need to. You can't market like you need to. You can't run your business like a true business person. And that's what I sell to the lenders. You're betting on me to get it to the finish line. And I got to be able to be capable to make my decisions from position of power. I got to be able to market and hire and train and run from position of power. And that means my money stays in the bank. But I'm true to that because I pay myself a paycheck. I pay myself a paycheck and my money truly stays for reinvestment in my organization for marketing and payroll and whatever it needs.
0: I feel very, very similarly to what you're talking about using OPM and pretty much only OPM mm-hmm. when doing deals. I've, I do the exact same thing with my team in multifamily and there are people that have said in, in the past, well, if your money's not in it, we don't want to invest and, and that's okay. But if like what you're saying, if I really want to make sure that we're successful, we always have money in the bank. We can always make sure we're paying this next payment. We can always make sure we're putting earnest money onto the next multifamily. Mm-hmm. We got to have that money sitting there. We have to have to have to have that. There's no way to grow. Like you said, there's, you cannot grow right. if you're, if you're all of your money's always tied up. You, you're not strong in the lender, in the, in the bank's eyes anymore. So I'm really glad that you brought that up and I'll, pro- I'll probably personally listen to this episode a couple of times just, just to hear how you worded that. I thought, it was, I thought it was really, really good. A lot of good info on OPM. Other people's money. I know you have other people's marketing and other right. people's money. All right, right so, so the next one is if you're doing over 120 fix and flips this year, total rehabs, you're going to have to know how to find great contractors. And I think there's a lot of people out there that want to get into this. They have the money, they have the knowledge, they have the experience, they have, you name it. But when you can't find the right contractor, you're screwed and you just lost 100K. So if you could give the audience a little bit of info on finding good contractors.
1: Well, I mean, finding good contractors, finding good employees, finding good private money lenders, it it's all comes down to the same thing. You got to turn a lot of dirt to get the gold. I mean, that's the practical reality. There I, There's no secret unicorn magic weapon that says, you know, it's going to produce a good contractor. So I just want to state that, that we, we've we struggled just like anybody else. But but we get that you got to turn a lot of gir- dirt. You got to talk to a lot of people. We have a process we go through. You know, the first thing we do is we call you and tell you exactly who we are and what we're doing. We're rehabbers. We understand you have to make money. We're looking for wholesale pricing where you can get paid and we can still get a deal. And, you know, half the people you talk to disqualify themselves right out the gate. I don't want to work with rehabbers. You guys never pay your bills. You guys are cooks or whatever. Um, you know, and then you got the other half that were willing to talk to you about it. Then you ask them to see a project or two. And half of those won't want to show you their projects. You know, they disqualify themselves. So, you know, you just go through that process over and over as you build a team. Um, one of the things I like to share is that whenever I'm looking for a contractor, I want to see a job in progress. And people think I'm nuts when I say that at first. But the reality is, I want to see, is the job clean and organized? If you're telling me that you're three days from being done, does it look like it's three days from being done? If you're telling me that you're one week from being done and I show up and nobody's on the job or you got one man there and there's a ton of work needs to be done, I'm seeing a lot more than I'm seeing on a finished project, right? I'm seeing so many things about how you run your business and whether or not you're going to be a problem. So that's number one. Then I want to see a finished project. I want to see a finished project, not because I want to know how good your work is. I want to see something you've done wrong in that job. And then I'm going to point that out to you. And I want to see how you handle it. If you blame the worker you fired or the homeowner that rushed you or didn't pay you, you do anything but take responsibility, I'm not hiring. you. So if you take responsibility and say, you know what, if you don't like it, I'm going to fix it. Or you know what, we'll make sure you meet your standards. Then I'm going to give you a shot. And then it's, let's do one and see how it goes. And that's what we've done from day one. We have, the other thing that we're really good at is maintaining relationships. I have multiple contractors that I have worked with since 2012, 13, 14, that we do ongoing work with because we we do pay on time. We do do what we say we're going to do. And we make sure that we show them just as much respect as we expect them to show us. We don't run them into the ground. And it's allowed us to grow a very successful business that way. A
0: lot of good info. I might have a follow-up question or two. So, when you're looking for finding contractors, you started by saying that we all make mistakes. Absolutely. Uh, And then you found, well, here's the best question that I can ask from everything that you said. uh, A family member that's close to you, Don Costa, comes up to you and says, hey, um, I want to do my first fix and flip. And they don't live in California, so you don't already have the contractors. Well, at knowing that, finding a good contractor is a key component, and this is somebody's very first fix and flip. Well, you've had the opportunity over time, you've had the opportunity to actually slowly, you know, lose money every now and again on a Mm -hmm. crappy contractor. But because you're at scale, that doesn't matter because overall, you're averaging, you know, 50 or 100 grand per flip anyway. So I guess the question is, your friend or family comes to you, they're in a new market. What do you tell them on how to find that new contractor? Uh, Part of that advice was, you know, go to their job, make sure it's clean and organized. Go to their uh, finished job, make sure that they're taking responsibility and all that. But what do you tell them to make sure that they streamline that process?
1: Well, okay. So, to find them, part of that question is, I don't think we do anything any different than anybody else. We're, we're on Craigslist. If I'm driving um, in a parking lot and I see a phone number on the back end of a bumper where I'm snapping a picture and sending it to my project manager. Um, I, I always say driving for contractors, people drive for dollars, drive for contractors you're going through a neighborhood and you see somebody doing work on a house, you stop and get their card. Um, my advice to finding one would be kind of the same way. Maybe get some referrals, reach out to some agents, you know, or something in the market and get some referrals of somebody they feel like is good. But those don't always work out. You got to try to find the, that right person. Um, one of the things that we do to control the process, uh, you know, for instance, because we've had, we've had issues where we've had to fire people we thought were going to be great and that, it happens. Um, we have systems in place. Now, we can do it the way we do it because of the volume we do, but you can still set up systems that match what you're doing. Um, you know, we, we require, like, we don't do deposits. I don't do any deposits. I'm allergic to them. They make me break out in hives. Um, and we require our contractors to bill us weekly, and uh, we pay them weekly. So our contractors will bill us on Friday, and they'll tell us everything they're going to finish this week. And then by the time they get to that following Friday, if everything's done that they said was gonna be done, they get that check. So we're only paying for work completed. And so um, we control a lot of things. We don't have to do the deposits because we're paying them weekly, we're paying them fast. They're setting goals and telling us what they're going to accomplish. On Monday, my girl comes in and she cuts all the checks, does the reports for our private money lender, sends the reports out and we're paying out that week so our company knows where we stand, um, you know, as far as the monies we're going to have to distri- distribute that that week. Um, we submit for reimbursement or draws from our lenders who are reimbursing us and not giving us all the money up front. And We have all that money in our account before we hand the check out. So we managed, we've managed understanding where the company stands. We manage cash flow issues right there, because we don't have any cash flow issues. The contractor has to set a goal, and he has to complete that goal to get paid, which helps us manage timelines. He only gets paid for the work completed. So if there's a problem with him next week, we can let him go, and we're not out very much. You kind of follow a trend here. So that one system manages so many things in our organization, and even if you're doing your first flip, you can do that. You can I'm not going to pay a deposit, but this is when I can pay you, and this is how we're going to do it you know, type of thing. And you stick to what you say you're going to do. You make sure they stick to what they say they're going to do. And you only pay for work completed. I mean, nothing makes me crazier in a draw schedule. You give somebody 10 grand up front to start. They're starting demo. Why do they need 10 grand? You don't need 10 grand to demo, right? You know, you understand the flow of a job. You understand they don't need that they start, you know, they're supposed to get a draw in two weeks for another 10 grand. They haven't even finished two weeks later the work that they were supposed to do for the first 10 grand. And now they're demanding the 10 grand, the second 10 grand because it's in their contract. And all that does is cause friction. So you set the standard, what you can do, make sure you're honest with yourself about what you can do and when you can pay. You set the expectation, you set the standard, you control it. And you're gonna find a, a lot of success that way. It's gonna be a work in progress for your probably your first couple of deals to figure out what works best for you. But once you figure that out, nothing controls a timeline, a project or a contractor like controlling the money. Nothing. You know, and you're gonna you're gonna find a lot of success from that.
0: Really love that. One thing that you mentioned is that you don't pay up front, you don't pay a down payment at the beginning, which is what I feel most of the contractors I've come across demand it or ask for it. They, they say, this is standard. We get half up front, half when we're done. Or they'll say, this is standard. We get a third before we start. We get a third halfway through and then a third or whatever. So my, I guess my question is, it has to obviously be a lot of positioning. So it has to be you putting yourself as a place of authority as a place of confidence that, well, I'm sorry, this is the way it's going to be. This is the way we do it. Instead of letting them do the demands, you found a way to say, well, no, this is how we pay. What would you say to somebody who wanted to pay these contractors the way that you pay them every Friday uh, and only if the work is complete? If they're kind of just starting out and they... And they're afraid to ask, or they keep losing contractors. What would be your best advice to that person to say how to actually keep asking or to stick to your guns? Does the question make sense, Don?
1: It absolutely does. Does make sense? I mean, everything you do in this business is how you frame it, right? You know, so you got to look at the contractor's perspective. They're afraid that they're going to get stuck with a bunch of work and no money. Um, You're afraid that they're going to take your money and not show up. Okay. So both sides have a reasonable concern. Absolutely. And I'm sure many contractors have been stuck by homeowners and many homeowners have been stuck by contractors. And, and so it's this game, right? And so we just, we, we sit there and we break it down. We're looking for a long-term relationship. We need to create a situation where we're, we're both happy and we're, you know, we both can continue to work together. I understand that you're concerned that you're not going to get paid. So let's just alleviate that. These are the dates I can pay on, whether you're every week or every two weeks or whatever this is when and how I can pay and I'm going to make sure I honor that as long as the work is done. And so, you know, if we can, you know, just come to an agreement that the work is done and I'm going to pay that, I will pay that. And you set that expectation, you frame it in a manner that alleviates some of that concern. The other thing is also, you know, I, I want to say, no, know, know, your power, right? I mean, we all think that con- the contractor because they're a contractor and they're so smart in the con- construction business that they over overwhelm or, 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 uh, what's the word, that, you know, they're better than us. Uh, We think that the private money lender because they have money is better than us, right? Know your value. You're bringing opportunity for consistent work to the contractor. Know your value. You're bringing an opportunity for consistent, good lending opportunities to the private lender. Go in there on equal footing. You're not better than them. They're not better than you. That's number one. If you know that going into it, you're going to be a lot better off in the conversation. Um, understanding their perspective. They're afraid that they're not going to get paid. That's going to help you frame things where you can negotiate things properly. And then also knowing your state laws. Like in California, it's 10% or $1,000, whichever is least, is the maximum deposit you can pay on a job. So it's a $50,000 job. The maximum you can pay for a deposit is 1000 bucks. So when a contractor comes in and asks me for 25% down or 50% down, they're actually breaking the law. Now, every state's going to be different. Know your state. But once you know that, that also puts you in a position of a lot of power. So, um, you know, knowing what they can and can't do. And what it really comes down to after that is being sincere, setting over-promising, under-promising and over-delivering, not over-promising and under-delivering. You know, if you say you're going to be able to pay on a certain date, make sure that you can have the money a couple days before so that you can honor that. And once you show them that you can honor your agreements, You're going to start building relationships with these these guys or gals and they're going to come back over and over and over again. Like I said, I have a contract I've worked with since 2012. You know, I give him job after job after job after job. You know, I'm his bread and butter, you know, and we take care of each other. And it it all started with the conversation at a job site about how we pay and why we pay and how I do things. And I also asked him, I pointed out something on baseboard that I didn't like. And his response to me was, if you don't like what we do for you, then I'll fix it. No questions asked. And he turned out to be one of my best contractors. So um, it's, it's a lot of work. I don't want to diminish that. You know, it's taken us a long time to build up the crews and the teams we had, but we just continued doing it. We continue to set the expectations. The only other thing I would say is if you feel like you're spinning your wheels, which is something we felt like we're doing on our end sometimes, is sometimes if we feel like the contractor has that it to be a good part of our team. We'll kind of do it half their way. We'll compromise half their way, half our way on the first job, per se. Still, I won't do a large deposit. That's preference. That does, there's no give there. But maybe they don't want to give us the pricing we want to have on the, on the job. And we'll compromise a little bit, get them into our system, show them how easy we are to work with, and then we'll come back to the table and say, now, this is how we do it. You know, if that makes sense. Like, we have standardized yep. pricing. And you go to a brand new contractor, standardized pricing, they're going lo- to laugh you out the door. But if you go to them and you say, give me a bid, you negotiate the bid, and you do the job, and then you come back after a couple jobs and say, okay, now we have standardized pricing. They know you and trust you. It's going to be a lot easier to get that done. Makes sense?
0: Very, very good. On that standardized pricing that you just mentioned that you said you'll, you might put in front of them after doing two jobs. My question on that is, is it your own standard pricing that you've always had that you put in front of them after they've done two jobs? Or are you creating a standardized pricing after, by seeing their numbers for those two jobs?
1: Well, originally we created it by kind of seeing the numbers consistently and knowing the numbers in our market, knowing what things should cost. Like I would get crazy things like $2,500 to scrape and, and texture a ceiling you know, off one contractor, and then I get another contractor to tell me one hundred seventy-five dollars a room, which is a fraction of twenty-five hundred bucks. I had a contractor once charge me two grand for for baseboard in a house. You know, an average fifteen hundred square foot house has roughly seven hundred fifty linear feet of baseboard. So, if you think you know your contractor pack of baseboard costs you roughly sixty cents after tax, there's no way that that should be two thousand dollars. You know, if, even if you did a dollar to install it plus the cost of material. You're not going to be $2,000 for that baseboard. So, understanding once you start to learn your market too, um, you're going to kind of, these things are going to fall into place. But uh, honestly, what standardized pricing for us is the collaboration with the contractors we work with. We sit down with them about once a year. Where are we at on on minimum wage? Where are we at on material costs? What's working for you? What's not? And there are some things where we agree to pay a little more on. There are some things where we end up paying a little less on each time we have these conversations. But we come to kind of a price point that everybody can live with. So I know that a certain light fixture, material and labor included, is going to be forty dollars installed every time, no questions asked. I know, like right now, we're paying a buck nineteen a linear foot for baseboard installed, no questions asked. You know, and, and so it makes it real easy for us to assess what the rehab's going to be on a job because we're not guessing. You know, so uh, once you can get to that point, that's the game changer. That takes a little bit of work and a lot of relationship building with contractors to get there, though.
0: All very good advice for finding contractors on what we just kind of went through. It's, it's know your value. You're on equal footing. That's right. number one. And then know your laws. Obviously, very important because you mentioned in California, you actually uh, are unable to pay more than the $1,000. It's whichever is smaller between the 10% and the $1,000. And you know that, so you have the leverage. And then you always do what you say you're going to do, number three. And then if you're spinning your wheels, you can kind of compromise a little bit on some things. I want to go back to know your value because when you brought it up, you said that this was good for your contractors, but you also mentioned that this is very good for your passive partners, the the people that join you with their money. Um, So I love that. And do you have any other thoughts on knowing your value, where as it stands in buyers, sellers, passive partners, or your contractors that you wanted to mention, because I think this is a really good point.
1: Well, I just think that we diminish our own value. We all have this voice in our head that tells us we're not good enough. I mean, we all deal with that. I think, you know, I've tried talking to entrepreneurs uh, that are high level about that voice, and I think we've learned to redirect it. I know I have. But there's still those moments of doubt in your in your value in, in in what you bring to the table, and we get scared, especially when you need money from a private money lender you 'll go in there um, almost stinking of desperation and so um, I just when you 're talking to a seller, you know you 're bringing an opportunity to solve a problem when you 're talking to a private money lender you 're bringing an opportunity to lend like I said at above market interest rates. You're, if you're talking to a contractor, you're bringing, bringing consistent work with a company that's easy to work with. When you're talking to somebody you're going to hire on your team, you're bringing an opportunity to work for a great company. When you start owning that, it becomes a game changer. I can sit across the table from a private money lender and just have a conversation. They, they're not better than me. And um, even when I was dead broke, I could sit across the table and have a conversation about what their goals are, what our goals are, are our goals aligned? And if they are, then let's do one and see how it goes. And, um, and I always did it that way. And it's made me very successful in in accomplishing what I want to accomplish. You know, I just, I removed that, that fear factor from the the whole equation, everything that I do. And it's, it's given me so much opportunity. And and I think that so many people out there need to hear that, that you, you are not um, in any way less than anybody else that you're trying to do business with, even if you are brand new. Uh, you're still somebody that's taking action, which is 10 times greater than, than anybody who hasn't taken action, you know? Uh, maybe if you're brand new and you're meeting a private money lender, you say, you know, I have a group of people, uh, you know, that I listen to or talk to or that I'm in, a, in, a, in an education program with that are my, like my board of directors, you know, and you bring that value to the table that way, you know, because you, maybe you don't have the knowledge, but you know where to get it and that has value. So uh, I just want people to hear that you know you need to stand on equal footing with anybody you're doing business with.
0: Absolutely love it. Thank you for going more into depth on that. Don we didn't expect to go this long on this call. Do you need to hop off? It's I'm okay good. Yeah, I'm good. All right, because I actually did have two more questions that I that I wanted to go into with you and it was kind of something we touched on in the beginning. We kind of promised the listeners that we would get into some of the systems and technology those are just the two last things I wanted to touch on. Okay, so as far as systems and technology, if you could give the listeners some some solid perhaps uh what would I say, what are these things on your phones? The applications, perhaps maybe hmm. some applications that you use in your team. Uh maybe uh I don't know if you use Trello or Podio or any of those types of uh CRMs, but Kind of give us some of those tools that you've used in your business and how they help you, and then and then we'll end today's episode.
1: Yeah, I mean, we obviously use Podio um, as our CRM in our organization. Podio really, we only use for a CRM in our organization, and it kind of stops once the property is in contract. We no longer use it. Um, We have Slack is um, another other product that we use, and that's been a game changer for organization. We. we used to email or text, you know, I'd email or text Lucius my project manager about something and he'd email or text somebody else and things we get lost in the shuffle and sometimes we remember who made a decision about this or that. So now the properties say in Slack have their own channel. This is a system we use. This is, I mean, literally a system we use. Every property has its own channel and everything we do on that property is in that channel. We don't text outside of it. We don't email outside of it. If I'm standing there with you, having a conversation with you, Adam, right face-to-face about the property, one of us is going to turn and slack that conversation and the decision made and document it uh, before we walk away from that, that conversation. So you can go through from the date we got it in contract all the way through to the date we disposed of that property and see pictures and documents and, and anything associated with what we're doing. That, that itself has been a game changer for us.
0: From what you said on Slack, is it possible for you to actually Um, use voice recordings, a voice memo to add to the Slack, or are you going to have to type all of that out?
1: That is a fantastic question, and I don't know that I've ever tried it it that way. I always type it out. Um, I'm sure it has a feature. Let me open it up and see. Um,
0: The reason I ask is because there is another application that I've used um, back in my fix and flip days a couple years ago um, between some team members. And I don't remember the, I, I don't know why I can't think of the name of it, but it did have that opportunity to just kind of do a quick voice thing. So you could walk through and just say, okay, I'm seeing this, I'm seeing this. And, and, and for me, somebody who's dyslexic and I literally hate typing or reading, um, it, it solves some problems, uh, at least for me. Um, I saw you looking at your phone. Were you able to see if it, that was an option on Slack or not?
1: I don't see that it is, but that doesn't mean that it isn't. So I can't honestly answer that question right now. Okay. But well, you can actually um, you can hit your microphone memo thing on your keyboard, and it will um, it will allow you to the, the dictate in the Slack. So you Got can it. do that. Um, Voxer is one I know that that I we've used. That's the one I was
0: talking about. Yeah.
1: But you can't document the history of the conversation the way you can in, in this other, in Slack. So that's the only downfall to it.
0: Okay. Um, Yeah. Got it. Um, Are, are there any other systems or technology that you think you might be able to add to the listeners before we let you go?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a fantastic question. You know, the, the, I mean, sit. What I will say about systems is don't get all hung up on what systems are. Systems, all they are is a process or a procedure that you put in your organization. It's just boundaries. You know, the, if we do this, then that happens. And that's it, that way every single time. So literally how you organize a file is a system or how you have contractors invoice you and how you pay them is a system. You know, how, you know what the software program you use and the certain way you use it is a system. And so when you hear, people hear systems, I think it's overwhelming for them, but really, it's just a rule, you know, if, if a check comes in, you know, it gets deposited on this day, that's literally a system, you know, if it, you know, if it comes in, you know, uh, Monday through Friday, we deposit on Mondays, and that's, that's our system for doing that, and it's just procedures that you follow, and then you teach somebody to do that in their job role, and that becomes a system that they follow and they do for you, and then you know that that's going to happen every time in your organization. So that's what I'll say about systems is, you know, just because we do something one way doesn't mean you have to do it. Find what works for your organization, make it a practice, a policy, and then just make sure that it's implemented and, and stuck to.
0: How do people find your podcast and or reach out to you if they had more questions or wanted to see what your company's doing?
1: They can they can always email me at com. I do respond there. Um, we have the Flip Talk podcast, which is um, it is on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, just about any place you can find it. And then I actually just, I was doing a series on Mondays called The Rookie Playbook, where we go, went from week one all the way through, we're going to go basically the entire year on, you know, what to do when you first have an idea that you want to start flipping houses, and we're going to take you all the way through kind of your first year in business where you should have employees and you should be doing higher level marketing and all that for and uh, that we just split into a separate podcast. And it's called Flip Talk Rookie Playbook. And that is, that is also on iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher. So there's two places on on the, those resources to find us. Um, one is interview style. Flip Talk, the original show is interview style. The Rookie Playbook is, it, it literally takes you through your first year in the business.
0: Don, you've added tons and tons and tons of value. This is probably, if not, one of the longest, it's probably the longest um, podcast I've ever done. And I was engaged the entire time. I think the listeners were as well. I got a lot of value from what you're saying. And if what goes on your Flip Talk Radio or Flip Talk Rookie podcast, uh, playbook podcast, is anything like this, I absolutely direct the listeners right there right now. So go find Flip Talk Rookie Playbook if you're wanting to get into this and find out what it is to go from week one through the end where you're actually scaling your business. And if you want to contact Don directly, it's don, D-O-N at fliptalk.com. All right. Anything else?
1: That's it, man. I just appreciate you having me on. Thank you. I
0: really appreciate you coming on. Tons and tons of value. Until next time, my friend, think outside the box.